You're listening to a podcast from the 5th Annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference. The conference took place at Maynooth University on the 28th and 29th of August, 2015. The conference was generously supported by Marsh's Library, the Department of History at Maynooth University, Graduate Studies Office at Maynooth University, UCD Research, UCD School of History and the Irish Research Council through a new Foundations Award. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Paul Murray entitled Puritanism and the Formation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, well, thank you all uh, for being here. Thank you to the organisers for putting out this wonderful conference and allowing me to speak. Also to uh, Jarlett and Jason who got me involved in this. Because I have to tell you, if you're a Stoker biographer, as I am, this is really mind-boggling stuff and definitely a game-changer in terms of Stoker biography. I thought we'd just start with a picture of Stoker. Here you, you can see him here in the centre. Fine figure of a man. At this stage, he's a, he's a champion athlete, a great rugby player. Um, but he's also... This is about two or three years after he, he's coming into March's library. But uh, he's also... This is he's taken with the officers of the Philosophical Society here. And in the late 1860s, he'll be doing uh, all sorts of literary, if you like, intellectual papers to the society. He becomes president in um, uh, 1870, and he's perhaps the only one, certainly one of the very few people, ever to be both president of the Phil and auditor of, of the Hist. So he's, he's quite an extraordinary character. Now, if Ram Stoker had written only one novel, and that novel had been The Mystery of the Sea, then there would be little difficulty in interpreting the material uncovered by Jason McGilligate at Marshall's Library. Published in 1902, the novel reprises 17th century English anxieties about the threat posed to the Anglican state by the papacy in alliance with the then global superpower Spain. Set into the complex plot of this lengthy novel is the story of a vast papally inspired Spanish conspiracy originating in the late 16th century, but still alive in the early 20th century, to subvert Anglican Anglican England and restore Roman Catholicism as the state religion. (coughs) The unscrupulousness of Roman Catholicism, a recurring theme in the Marshall's Library material, is reflected in the direction of Pope Sixtus V to the Spanish commander in the novel that he used bribery and any immoral means to carry out the papal mission. After the conquest of England, the figurehead of the Spanish flagship is to be set symbolically over the high altar of Westminster Abbey. The conspiratorial obsession underlying Stoker's novel fits perfectly the material consulted by him at Marshall's Library in 1866-67. Stoker's narrator asserts that, quote, little happens in Christendom, I and beyond it, which is not echoed in secret in the Vatican, unquote. Almost without exception, a similar paranoid Protestantism permeates Marsh's material. I should say here that the Puritanism in the title of my talk refers to the Puritanical element in Protestantism, Anglicanism in particular, as this was the religion of most of Marsh's authors and the denomination to which Stoker himself belonged. It's important to differentiate this from Puritanism in the 17th century sense of non-conformist opposition to Anglicanism, which seldom has a voice in the material. Similarly, in examining the formation of Stoker's Dracula, it is necessary to consider this material in the wider context of Stoker's fictional output more generally. In resurrecting in fiction the uh, papal Spanish threat to Tudor England, Stoker is following an important strand in the English-Irish Gothic literary tradition 
some of whose key works, like the, the Mystery of the Sea, exploited anxieties about the interrelated horrors of the Church of Rome and Catholic Spain. These included Melmoth the Wanderer, 1820, by Charles Maturin, a Church of Ireland clergyman, whose nephew was librarian of Stoker's, or sorry, of March's Library uh, later in the 19th century. Edward Dowden, whom we see here, Professor of English at Trinity, and a man who incidentally lived in the house I now occupy in Dublin, uh, was arguably the most potent intellectual influence on the young Stoker. I wrote that in the time of Queen Elizabeth I, England's political and religious antagonists, Spain and the papacy, were identical. Similar sentiments pervaded John Dryden's late 17th century work, The Spanish Friar, or The Double Discovery, a copy of which was in Stoker's own library. Dryden, as we've heard, was among the authors consulted by Stoker in Marsh's library. Um, John Jesse McGillicott has given a comprehensive account of the material seen by Bram Stoker in the library. A number of conclusions emerge. First is the comprehensive anti-Roman Catholicism that unites most of the material. The single most distinctive element in this carnival of anti-popery was the fascination with the Jesuits, seen as a shadowy, malign, global force for evil. For example, the pamphlet Secret Intrigues of the Popish of the Romish Party in Ireland describes the machinations of Thomas Sheridan, TCD graduate and Church of Ireland clergyman, who, suborned by the Jesuit party, hatched the plan to turn the tax revenue of Ireland over to the Roman Catholics. No mention of water charges. Um, the parallels are drawn between Satan, quote, the great deceiver of mankind, unquote, and this dastardly work of the Jesuits. Even the non-overtly polemical material contains similar strands. When Stoker consulted the works of Geoffrey Chaucer, he would have found in it the Friar's Tale, the story of a depraved uh, archdeacon who practised witchcraft as well as many other forms of sin, having become sworn brethren with the devil, with whom he finally goes to hell. In this and some of the other tales, we have anticipations of the licentious and criminal monks of the later Gothic literature. Ben Johnson's comedy, The Staple of News, in a volume requested by Stoker at Marshes, contains surreal comedy about, uh, about the Turkish Sultan becoming a Christian and being in competition with the Pope about which of them is the Antichrist. While Johnson's intention may have been satirical, other poets whose work were read by Stoker Marshes Library pursued similar topics with a more plodding sincerity. Edmund Waller's 1664 collection contains a number of political poems already alluded to by Jason. Waller's political concerns are paralleled in George Downs' 1824 collection, Dublin University Prize Poems. One of them, The Death of Don Carlos, explores horror themes of Spanish uh, tyranny and the Inquisition. Don Carlos, determined to wrest Flanders from King Philip's demon grasp, is betrayed and handed over to the Inquisition, but commits suicide. Algiers Chastened is a classic piece of anti-Muslim 19th century imperialism in praise, in praise of British action against Algiers, with a dichotomy between the free Christian British and the enslaved peoples under Muslim rule. Other poems, such as the Ode for St. Patrick's Day and Sonnet, are mixtures of attachment to Ireland and British jingoism that one finds in Stoker. Um, the 1836 collection of poems by N. Gordon, whom we see here, evinces religious rather than political concerns. Jason is right uh, to characterise Gordon's poems as truly dreadful, uh, but his contemporaries, some of them at least, saw things differently. 
An article in the Dublin University magazine of 1837 said of Gordon, where other men faint, he waxes strong, and praises him at some considerable length. One of Gordon's poems, not in the collection seen by Stokert Marsh's A Vision of Hell, contains language in the landscape evocative of Dracula. In it, the poet has a dream of hell in which unbodied souls are howling with startling blasphemies till their gasps drown their baffled sighs. In Dracula, the Count would exhibit baffled malice and baffled malignity of anger and hellish rage, and he is in one sense a vision of hell unleashed upon the world. Such Gothic work might have led Stoker to seek out more of Gordon's poetry at Marsh's. In his 1872 auditorial address to the Trinity College Historical Society, the 25-year-old Stoker stated that, quote, the moral force of consistent truth is enormous, unquote, and, quote, self-belief and self-reliance can only spring from habitual faith, unquote. This in turn generated British patriotism and, quote, both the, bore the martyrs of all time through the torrents, sorry, through the torments of rack and flame. Stoker's invocation of martyrs seems to be inclusive in the sense that he does not specify those of a particular type. However, as Jason has pointed out, Stoker consulted John Fox's monumental polemical work on Protestant martyrs in March uh, 1867, so it is probably fair to assume that he had these in mind. Fox's work, by the way, is, has many, many uh, uh, illustrations like this of uh, the martyrdom of the various Protestant martyrs. In singling out uh, Bernard Pellissy, the 16th century Huguenot potter and writer persecuted to death for his Protestantism in France, Stoker is striking a chord that would have resonated with Edward Dowden, who would himself research French Protestant martyrs in Marsh's Library two decades later. Uh, in 1889, the Marsh's visitor book records uh, Professor Dowden coming to see all French Protestant manuscripts. What Dowden ordered was two large collections of papers, including both pamphlets and original manuscripts, detailing the persecution of the Reformed Church in France in the 17th century. Dowden may have been researching his later book, Puritan and Anglican Studies in Literature, published in 1900. I commented uh, in my biography on the influence that this may have had on Stoker. Concern about Turkish expansion goes back to the dawn of Protestantism in the person of Martin Luther. Jason has already uh, alluded to this. In one collection seen by Stoker, Luther's warning against the Turks follows a series of pamphlets uncovering the dastardly deeds of the Jesuits. Luther, who respected the military ability of the Turks, feared that Germany could suffer the fate of Troy, the glory of which was quickly brought to desolation. On the vexed question as to who was truly the Antichrist, Luther, in this pamphlet, decided that the Pope was the spirit and soul of the Antichrist, while the Turk was his body. Uh, a similar duality about the papacy and the Turk pervaded the work of John Fox. The Turks loom large in the accounts of Transylvania and, to a lesser extent, Valachia, which feature in the material consulted by Stoker. Exactly when he became aware of Transylvania, a rather obscure part of Europe in the late 19th century, and the historical Dracula, has been the subject of debate in Stoker biography. In fact, Transylvania, Valachia and Dracula feature repeatedly in the Marsh's library material seen by Stoker, and he is therefore likely to have known of them from his teens. Indeed, the material may hold a clue as to why an 18-year-old who was failing in his studies of Trinity and was in the process of entering the civil service would have been accessing this material in the first place. 
We know that his last novel, The Lair of the White Worm, was based on a short story elaborated by him in 1873. So it is possible that Stoker was researching in areas that would become relevant to his later fictional output. He may have known what he was looking for in Marshes, as he could not possibly have read all the material carefully in the relatively brief time that he spent there. The first point to emerge from this material is that in the 17th century and earlier, Transylvania is a significant, well-known part of Europe that features prominently in the geography maps of the era, specifically those consulted by Stoker, and Jason has already alluded to this. The 1711 Atlas Geographus, seen by the 18-year-old Stoker on 6 July 1866, includes Transylvania in the list of kingdoms of Europe, sorry, in the list of dukedoms of Europe, it also comments that Protestantism formerly had a large foothold in the area, but lost much of it through the violent persecution of popish princes. European religion having been adversely affected by, quote, the gross idolatry and superstition among the papists, unquote. Volume two of the same work includes Transylvania as part of the Kingdom of Hungary and emphasizes, as Stoker would do later in Dracula, its racial and religious diversity. Three different peoples made up Transylvania, the Siculi, supposedly descendants of the ancient Huns, the Saxons and the Hungarians. The Siculi and Hungarians were mostly Calvinists and the Saxons Lutherans, but there was a mixture of other religions, including Papists, among them. Transylvania also featured in the maps in John Harris's collections of voyages and travels, seen too by Stoker the same day, as do the Turks. A week later, Stoker ordered uh, Perkis his pilgrimages, 1625, the first volume of which included a reference to Transylvania having a bishop in the university. Volume 2 featured a map of Transylvania and a reference to another book, The Wars of Transylvania, Valachi and Moldava, Moldavia, which featured the involvement of an English Captain Smith in fighting the Turks. Jonathan Harker was clearly not the first Englishman to be involved with Transylvania. The same day Stoker consulted Peter Halen's 1682 cosmography, which, was a good, which had a good deal to say about Transylvania, Valachia, and the historical Dracula. Hungaria, sorry, Hungary was bounded on the east by Valachia and Transylvania. Christianity had been gallantly and courageously defended against the Turks, but the Christians had broken into factions, some perniciously adhering to the Church of Rome others following Luther or Calvin. Transylvania is covered under the heading of Dacia. Its people were much the same as the Hungarians, but somewhat more stubborn and intractable. The chief towns included Bistritzia, a sweet and pleasant town, uh, uh, which was, of course, the region in which Dracula's castle is set in Stoker's novel. First in the list of princes provided by Peter Hendlin is John Honiades, Quote, a man of great valour and renown, the great defender of his country against the Turks, whom he overthrew in many battles and slew 50,000 of them. He died about the year 1458. He may be a more likely model for the heroic, the heroic count in Stoker's Dracula than the historic Dracula, who was a prince of Valachia. And the others, by contrast, was a prince of Transylvania, as he is in Stoker's novel. It raises the possibility that Stoker's character is a composite of Hodiades the Transylvanian and Dracula the Valachian. John Fox describes John Hodiades having been born in Valachia and holding the title Earl of Bistritz, now Bistritza, again the, the area for Dracula's castle, and uh, this reinforces the case for seeing him as a partial model 
for Count Dracula. Now, Helen uh, paints a very unflattering picture of the people of Valachia. They were Greek Orthodox in religion, I think it's very significant, and, quote, partake of the rudeness and barbarity of those nations, being a rough-hewn people, hardly civilised, and ignorant for the most part of letters and all liberal sciences, not weaned perfectly from the superstitions of the Gentiles. His history of Valachia includes a Prince Dracula, D-R-A-C-A-L-A, under pressure from the Turks in the early 15th century, the Valachians put themselves under the protection of the Hungarians, but paid dearly when their country was made the thoroughfare of the Turks in their attacks on Hungary. And the Hungarians, defeated the Battle of Kosovo, had to pay tribute to the Turks. In 1462, Muhammad the Great, quote, undertook the conquest of that country and set up Dracula, the younger brother of Vladus, to claim the government who, making a party amongst the people and having a Turk for his assistance and support, possessed himself of the estate to be holden of him as a vassal to the Turkish Empire. And it continued in this state, the Vyavodes being after this at the Turk's appointment till the revolt of Sigismund, the Prince of Transylvania, anno 1495. This Dracula is a pawn as opposed to an opponent of the Turks and had none of the heroic qualities attributed to Dracula by Stoker. Transylvania is described in Jeremy Collier's Great Historical, Geographical, Genealogical and Poetical Dictionary of 1688 as a Principality of Europe, which was named by the Romans for its forests and mountains. Inhabited by Saxons, Bulgarians and Hungarians, the doctrines of Calvin and Luther had been introduced in 1561. The Vyavod, meaning essentially the ruler, uh, was successfully a Lutheran and Calvinist, while the King of Poland tried to introduce Roman Catholicism and the Jesuits established there in the late 16th century. Its princes now oscillated between being tributaries of the Turks and the Emperor of Germany. Bistritza and Hermannstadt were listed as the principal towns. Collier gives a positive account of Ahmed, Emperor of the Turks, who recovered control of Transylvania, Valachia and Moldavia. There is no entry for Dracula, but there is a reference to the dragon overthrown, an order of knighthood instituted by the Emperor Sigismund about 1418, and the one from which the historic Dracula derived his name. A short entry for Valachia is unflattering. Inhabited by Saxons, Hungarians and natives, the people are inconstant and wild and adherents to the Greek religion. The Vyavod paid tribute to the Turkish port to maintain himself in his principality. These consistently negative descriptions of Valachia and the fact that its dominant religion was Greek Orthodox, which does not feature in Dracula, may be part of the reason why Stoker moved Count Dracula to Transylvania. Another book in Marshall's library which, that features John Hedyades and Dracula, Prince of Valachia, was Richard Knowles' General History of the Turks, 1603. Now, this was not requested by Stoker, it describes John Honiade's struggle against the Turks. The young king of Ladislaus is killed in battle by the Turks. Honiade escapes into Valachia and, quote, was there, as some write, by Dracula, prince of that country, taken prisoner. In revenge whereof, after he was enlarged by the Hungarians, he so aided Danus against Dracula that in fine, Dracula and his son were both slain and Danus placed in his room. What these various books which mention the historic Dracula underline 
is that he has a relatively mainstream character in the 17th century works dealing with the intertwined subjects of Transylvania, Valachia and the Turks. Contrary to the accepted view that Stoker first became aware of them when he was researching the material for Dracula several years before its publication in 1897, it is now clear that he would have known of the real Dracula from his teenage years. This in turn reinforces my theory put forward in the 2012 article, The Primrose Path to Dracula, that the origins of the novel lay in the concerns and themes permeating his early work, first published in Dublin in the mid-1870s and developed through his first novel, The Snake's Pass, and some mastery short stories up to the publication of Dracula in 1897. The Snake's Pass, by the way, is his first novel and is actually set in Ireland. Among those concerns uh, is a religious one. Stoker was given a Bible for his ninth birthday and its underlinings make clear his close reading of it. The earnestly religious atmosphere of his childhood home is also evident in the biblical note with which his mother, Charlotte, concludes the recount of a cholera epidemic in the Sligo of her youth. Quote, At the end of that time we abode in peace and had great reason to thank God who had spared us through such dangerous and trying times and scenes. The idea of providential deliverance runs through the pamphlets that are sold consulted at marshes, especially in relation to the siege of Derry uh, in 1690. The books and pamphlets being read by Stoker exhibit a classic 17th century historiography intended to inform and shape Christian or Protestant readership, depending on context. Mid-19th century English historiographical or travel writing could serve similar purposes. For example, in the United States of the Ionian Islands, which existed from 1815 to 1864, the UK created an ingenious system of governance which in theory exhibited many of the characteristics of independence while being subject to effective British control. The islands were seen as being of key strategic importance in protecting communications with India, and in the mid-decades of the 19th century, British writers waged a propaganda battle to convince all concerned of the benefits of UK rule and concomitantly the horrors of that of Turkey. Edmund Spencer's travels in European Turkey, 1850, is a representative example. By contrast with the inadequacies of both Turk and Greek, British rule shone, quote, if ever a people were formed to guide the destinies of man, to advance his progress in civilization and industry, the task has devolved upon the Anglo-Saxon race. They alone have attained true freedom and national greatness and promised to break down the barriers of race and that circle the globe with their language, religion and institutions. Spencer deals with the areas that will feature in Dracula. The same active and mischievous influence that put arms in the hands of the Slovenians in 1848 was equally successful in Transylvania, the home of the sturdy Saxon and the semi-civilised Valachian. So in 1850, you're getting exactly the same view as you got back in the 17th century. It's interesting that the negative 17th century view of the Valachians persisted in the mid-19th century. Spencer described the people of Styria, an original location for Stoker's Dracula, as firmly believing in apparitions, witches, sorcerers, the evil eye, love portions, vampires, and other wonders cherished by mankind in a state bordering upon semi-barbarism. Stoker's description of Montenegro would also anticipate Stoker's The Lady of the Shroud. Sorry. Here we see a close continuity of view between the 17th century works consulted at Marshall's by Stoker, those published in his lifetime, and his fictional output. 
We know little of the Adam Stoker's religious views, but a modern assumption that he would not have taken religion too seriously is not necessarily the case. His 1885 poem, One Thing Needful, based on the gospel story of Mary and Martha, seems genuine in his Christian earnestness. His wife Florence was sufficiently engaged with religion to convert to Roman Catholicism in 1904. The central terror of Dracula is that of losing one's soul, still potent in the Victorian era, but now so attenuated that the vacuum has to be filled by various isms or association of the novel with far-fetched connections to the likes of Jack the Ripper. In the 17th century, the fear of losing one's soul was closely connected with the fear of Turkish domination, a possibility that remained alive for another century. Just as in the second major strand of Stoker's reading at Marshall's Library, after Protestant fears of a rejuvenated popery, so it would loom large in Stoker's fictional output. Count Dracula's heroic struggle against the Turks counterpoints the depravity into which he sinks after he dabbles in the occult. And here we see Stoker <coughs> as Alder of the Hist, 1872. You see him there in the centre sitting with his committee. Ironically, Stoker's family connection to the Turks began with the service of his doctor brother George with the Red Crescent Ambulance in the Balkans at the time of the Serbo-Turkish and Turco-Russian Wars 1876-78, and his account of the experiences was not antagonistic to the Turks. <coughs> By contrast, the dastardly plot of the Turkish Sultan to abduct the heir to the throne of the fictional land of the Blue Mountains, modelled on Montenegro, in Stoker's novel The Lady of the Shroud, and force her into marriage, just thus giving him sovereignty over her country, reveals the Turk as both a political and a sexual threat as late as 1909. He plays much the same threatening role as the papacy and the Spanish in the mystery of the sea. Confir confirmation that these underlying attitudes were deeply held by its author would appear to come from his auditorial address to the Trinity College Historical Society on 30 November 1872, when he was 25. His identification with the tradition of British valour and Protestantism would appear to place Stoker in the 17th century attitudes uh, evident in the Marshall's Library material. However, his auditorial address contains a surprising second strand, one which would invoke an Irish nationalist tradition of suffering and strife. This was, after all, a man whose great-uncle was hanged for rebellion in 1798. Stoker now advocated tolerance and liberalism in the place of bigotry, prejudice and cynicism. The Irish race possessed elements of greatness which must transcend sectarian feuds, and bury ancient enmities. Quote, we must choose whether we live for the future or the past, and it needs little effort to see the nobler choice. Stoker repeats, by the way, those kind of sentiments as late as 1907 in an article which he did on, on the World's Fair in Dublin at that time. If we look at the broad sweep of Stoker's life, there can be little doubt that this second strand was dominant. A convert to Gladstonian liberalism in his youth, he had a lifelong commitment to home rule, the dominant form of Irish nationalism throughout his adult life. Brahms, eldest brother Thorley, shared his home rule convictions, and these caused bitter divisions within the Stoker family. The fact that Thorley, to whom Brahms was close all his life, owned a table on which Robert Emmett's head was cut off following his execution would suggest that his nationalism was more than superficial. Describing himself as a philosophical home ruler, Brahms had close friendships with the leading home rulers throughout his time in London, including William O'Brien, Justin McCarthy, and John Dillon. 
He was proud of his long relationship with Valentine Blake Dillon, a leading land leaguer and Parnellite nationalist. Stoker, his wife Florence and Thornley, continued to be active in home rule politics as late as 1910. Stoker tells us that Henry Irving, his employer at the Lyceum Theatre, liked to rib him about his home rule politics, but characterises his boss as essentially apolitical. This, however, does not quite tell the full story. Irving was introduced to the exclusive Marlborough Club by its founder and arbiter of membership, Edward, Prince of Wales, later King Edward VII. Irving and Edward were both active Freemasons, and Edward's patronage was critical to the success of the Royal Lyceum Theatre, a social as well as an artistic phenomenon. The prospect of a Eucharistic Congress being held in London in 1908 brought to the surface a strong antagonism towards Roman Catholicism on behalf on the part of both Edward, now, now King, and Prime Minister Asquith, who fumed about respectable Protestant sentiment being, quote, offended by this gang of foreign cardinals taking advantage of our hospitality to parade their idolatries through the streets of London, a thing without precedence since the days of Bloody Mary. The fears expressed in the mystery of the sea were not far below the surface of Edwardian England. Roland Fanning has described how antipathy to subjecting loyal Protestants in northeastern Ulster to the dominance of the Catholic majority in the island of Ireland characterised liberal as well as conservative attitudes to home rule in Stoker's era. In the circumstances, his, his adherence to his home rule principles took a certain degree of courage given the circles in which he moved in London and it is indicative of the depth of his convictions. This in turn means that the illiberality of the 17th century material in which he immersed himself in marshes coexisted quite happily with tenaciously held liberal views with both capital and lowercase l's. Puritanism certainly exercised a strong influence on Stoker. In Famous Impostors, he quotes from Milton's Paradise Lost on Satan, and I have little doubt that the Puritan, the Puritan poet's central character exercised a strong and I think underappreciated role in the formation of Stoker's count. His journey from hell to earth to subvert mankind bears an obvious parallel with Dracula's travel from Transylvania to England. His familiarity with John Bunyan's Puritan work, The Pilgrim's Progress, is obvious from his 1907 story, In the Valley of the Shadow. Edward Dowden analysed how, for the Puritan imagination, a world of magic lay around the human soul, blessed angels, demons of the pit, special interpositions of providence, miraculous works of scripture, preternatural voices echoing in the heart. Notwithstanding Stoker's Anglicanism, there is no doubt that this Puritan imagination played a potent role in the formation of Dracula, where yet, ironically, it merges with the world of Transylvanian superstition and Roman Catholic ritual to create a, a unique and terrifying spiritual landscape. The Marshall's Library material described by Jason McGilligate is of crucial importance in untangling the complex political and religious views that permeate Bram Stoker's Dracula. That's the, the cover, by the way, of the first edition there. Making sense of them and placing them in their proper biographical context is challenging given the relative paucity of primary material on Stoker's personal and spiritual life. Overall, I would say that the material he consulted there points to a keen interest in the intertwined subjects of Anglicanism, Puritanism and the Turks in the context of the 17th century, and these played a vital role in the construction of Dracula. 
He was not a prisoner of these influences, even if, like so many of his contemporaries, they continue to resonate strongly within him and to colour both the context and the content of his writing. Thank you.